I know I've said this the last couple of weeks, but uh, I don't know. I just want to say it again. I, lo- I love worshiping Jesus with you guys. And uh, I, I stand up here, and I, I don't know, I, I feel the energy coming from you guys. And, and uh, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to worship. Uh, it's fun to worship the Lord with you. Last week, uh, we said that the radical grace of God calls for, anybody remember? Nobody remembers? It's okay. Uh, a radical, the radical grace of God calls for a, a radical response. Thank you, Erica. A radical response. We said radical grace demands a radical life of radical faith. And Paul is defending the purity of the biblical gospel in Colossians. And one of the inferences is, if, if our salvation is this awesome, we ought to live it huge. Amen? So this is uh, one of the things we've been talking about in Colossians. Uh, you remember what that young woman at Tim Keller's church said. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote her again. Here she goes. If I am saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there is nothing God cannot ask of me. And I love this quote. This woman articulates the implication of radical grace, the radical love and and grace of God that He has shown toward His people. She She has intuitively deduced the truth that is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. Let me just share it with you. You know where God says, Do you not know that you are not your own? Do you not know this body of Christ? You are not your own, God says. For you have been bought with what? A price. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. Beloved, let me just stop and ask you right now. Do you know this to be true? Do you know that you were purchased with a price, a high price, an infinite price? Do you know you're not your own? Do you know this? If you profess to be a Christian, this is, to, this is supposed to be true of you. You're not your own. You've been bought. You've been bought by the Son of God. And what does He say? Therefore, glorify God. Glorify God in your life. I dare say... Some of you might not be living the way you're living if you really understood this to be true. If you really understood what this young woman is articulating for us. The only reasonable response to radical grace is a radical life of faith. The only reasonable response to this God who's given Himself away to us is that we would in turn give ourselves away to Him. I think that is the implication at least in part, of Colossians. You know, and we talked about this last week. If we are saved by sheer grace, and we are, and we talked about the legitimacy of Christ's call to us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I told you last week, Jesus has never called anybody to lukewarm religion. He's never called anybody to that. He always calls everybody to the same thing. Follow me. Follow me. That's it. Follow me. No hesitation. No questions. No doubts. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow 
me. It's always been like this. It's never not been like this. You can't hedge your bet with Jesus Christ. You can't straddle the fence with Jesus Christ. You can't play the middle with Jesus Christ. It's always been all or nothing with Jesus Christ. It's always been that way. And you remember that next verse, Luke chapter 9, verse 24, the very next verse after Christ's radical invitation. It goes like this, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, he is the one who will save it. Beloved, that is in the Gospels six times. I don't know if you... That, that, I think that may be the most oft-repeated uh, phrase off the lips of Jesus. Six times in the Gospels. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one that shall save it. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. Christ says, give me all. Is that how you understand the Gospel? Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money, so much of your, your work. I want you. Isn't that, isn't that the call of the Gospel? Isn't that the call of the gospel? I want you, Jesus says. Lewis goes on. Uh, I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. <laughs> I've come to kill it, Jesus says. Half measures are no good. And if you read a little bit further, C.S. Lewis says, you know, there's no reasoning with him. There's no reasoning with I am. You don't negotiate with I am. You either go with I am or you don't. That's the radical call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we either accept His invitation or we don't go with Him. The, the, the terms are not up for negotiation. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Radically, follow me. That's what He means. Follow me. It's not up to, uh, for negotiation. Jesus says, follow me. C.S. Lewis is right. There are no half measures with I am. And I, again, Tim Keller's friend is, is exactly right. Radical grace demands a radical response. And, you know, this is the thing I hear Paul between the lines saying. You know, he's dispensing with all this man-made religion. He says, man, you're saved by God's work alone, the sovereign work of God. You're saved by God's work. It's not about religion. You're not meriting your salvation through your works. It's by grace. And Christ's call is legitimate. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's a legitimate call from the living God. The merely religious men uh, in Paul's, uh, Paul is addressing, they were just playing uh, re religion with God. And you know, a religious man will hear this kind of talk. They'll hear that, that Luke 9 verse 23 verse and this, this, uh, this all-encompassing call of Christ and they'll recoil they'll hear some kind of grinding obligation to God. But you know, the true believer hears it differently. The, the man or woman who has the ears to hear, they hear this beautiful invitation to walk with God. It's not a, some kind of obligation. It's a beautiful, beautiful privilege. It's a privilege to go with Him and to, and to live with Him and to walk with Him and to experience the joy and the life that He alone can give. It's the whole Peter in the boat, Jesus walking on the water thing. That's what it is. Peter was, was really comfortable in the boat. It was good to stay in the boat. He sinks. It's good. Let's stay in the boat. Staying in the boat is the wise course. There's no reason for Peter to get out of the boat. 
But why does Peter want to get out of the boat? Because Jesus is out there. This is the born-again heart. The born-again heart wants to follow Him. Even if it's not safe. Even if it doesn't make sense. In a temporal uh, way. Peter wanted to go where Jesus was. Jesus was out there. That's all that mattered to Peter. I love this about him. He had this appetite to go with Christ. There was this appetite in him. Jesus didn't tell Peter to come out there. Peter says, hey, if that's you, Lord, and uh, bid me come. And what's Jesus always going to say when you say, bid me come, Lord? What's he always going to say? He's always going to say, come. Let me ask you, Christian friend, when's the last time you asked Jesus to bid you come? Because he will, he will answer that prayer. He will bid you to come deeper with him in your faith and in your walk. Lord Jesus, if that's you out there, bid me come. Jesus says, come. It doesn't matter if it's impossible. Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on water. Can't wait to talk to him about that. Can't wait to talk to him about that. So when a true believer hears this talk of a radical life, of radical faith, he gets it. It's an invitation to walk with God, even if it's on the water. So we don't hear a grinding obligation. We hear this beautiful invitation that's full of adventure and intimacy. And joy as we walk with Jesus Christ tonight as we get into chapter 3 of Colossians. Paul has more or less completed his defense of the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is that we are saved by grace alone through in Christ alone. Amen. I think by the time we're through with Colossians, everyone will know this. This is the, the great cry of the Protestant Reformation. This is the biblical gospel. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul is re and, and, uh, pardon me, rebutting and refuting the false teachers who've been teaching that you had to have Jesus plus something to be saved. Jesus plus legalism. Jesus plus mysticism. Jesus plus asceticism. And Paul is rebutting this, as we've been saying, and I, I'm going to con continue to say it, uh, you'll never forget what Colossians is about, I think. Uh, as Paul defends the, the, the biblical gospel, it doesn't matter if you call it Catholic, Protestant, or something else. Anytime you add Jesus, anything, anytime you add anything to Jesus, that is a false gospel. It, it, is, it is always false. It's, a, it's wrong. It's demonic, as we've been saying. It's from the father of lies. If you say you have to add something to the finished work of Christ... To be saved, you know who you're listening to. You're listening to the father of lies. Jesus is able to save his people. That's what Paul's been saying all along in the first two chapters. He's God. He's I am. He's uh, Adonai. He's El Shaddai. He's Jehovah Jireh. He saves his people. He doesn't need any help from a legalist. He doesn't need any help from a mystic or an ascetic. God saves His people. He needs no assistance. And again, I just want to say it again. I can, I can, I can see between the lines here. It's like Paul saying, don't you dare add anything to Jesus. Don't you dare add anything to the purity of the gospel of radical grace, radical love that God has shown to his people. In chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul begins to do what he always does in all of his letters. He, he takes the first two chapters of Colossians and he says, here's the truth of God. And then he takes the last two chapters and guess what he's going to say? Here's what I want you to do with it. Paul always makes the application. 
And so as we, as we get into chapter 3, we're going to start to see the application of what we're supposed to do with this, this radical gospel of grace. As we learned in the book of James last year, and actually I preached this morning uh, uh, out of that great text in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. We, we talked about that this morning. That, that those who merely hear the word and never do it, they're, does anybody remember what James says? They're what? They're deluded. And remember what, what, what uh, James says about the man who uh, simply talks the word but never does it. Does anybody remember? James says that man's faith is dead. That man's faith is useless. Again, Jesus has never called anybody to academic or theoretical faith. It's always been deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's the kind of faith Jesus has always called His people to. Paul has defended the simplicity and purity of, of the biblical gospel. Uh, he's confirmed that we are saved by radical love and radical grace. And now Paul is going to exhort us to the only reasonable response to that, which is a radical life. And... Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful exhortation. Let me read again for you. Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You may remember two weeks ago we saw that we are made whole and complete and full in Christ. In Christ, we, we are... Uh, Complete in Him. Colossians 2.12. You remember the verse we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Paul wrote that we've been buried with Him in baptism and raised up with Him. Now, we talked about this. This is not talking about water baptism. It's a picture of our spiritual union with the Lord Jesus. Of dying to ourselves and being made alive through His resurrection power. Now, what, what I want to show you, I want to show you this. Colossians 2.20. Last week, the Holy Spirit said this. Colossians 2.20. If you have died with Christ, why are you still living as if you are subject to the elementary principles of the world? He's challenging us there. He said, he's saying, hey, have you really died to Christ? Have you really died to Christ? He says, if you, if you, if you have died with Christ, why are you still living according to these elementary principles? Then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, Hey, if you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things above. So do you see what the Holy Spirit is, is saying to us here and how uh, Colossians 2.12 is fleshed out by Colossians 2.20 and Colossians 3.1. The Holy, Holy Spirit says, This is what it looks like when you're in union with Christ. You're seeking the things above. You've set your mind on the things uh, above. You're no longer enamored with the world. You're no longer in love with the world. You are in love with Christ. And He is in the heavenlies. And you've set your mind there. You've set your heart there. And everybody around you knows it. They can tell. It's real with you. It's not Sunday morning at church. It's real with you. 24-7, it's real with you. This is, the, this is the call, I think, of Paul to us. Setting our, our, our hearts and our minds on Christ who is in the heavenlies. We, we have joyfully died to the things of the world and we are aggressively and proactively seeking the things above. That is the aroma of our life. We talked about this in our Heaven series 
I forget when that was, I think early last year. The Christian worldview is dominated by what? The Christian's worldview is dominated by his heaven view. It's dominated by his view of Jesus and his view of heaven. Our worldview is dominated by the things of God. We don't take the short view. We're not overly concerned about the next 70 to 80 years. We're principally concerned with the next billion eternities. Amen? This is what, this is what Paul is saying. Set your heart, your mind on the things above and live seeking these things. This is the clear teaching of the Holy Spirit here. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, in other words, if, if this thing's uh, real for you, live like it. Live like it's real. No more, no more lukewarm uh, Christianity. No more. No more. If that's been a reality in your life, no more. Repent tonight. No more lukewarm Christianity. Radical grace is a call to a radical life of radical faith. That is the call of the Bible. I love how Eugene Peterson, he's the guy that wrote the Message Bible. We understand it's a paraphrase, so you have to watch it a little bit. But I love how he, he paraphrases Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it, he says. I love that. Don't shuffle uh, along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ in the heavenlies. That's where the action is. I love this. See things from His perspective. Beloved, we're supposed to be seeing things from God's perspective. And we're to be living from that perspective every day. This is something we should be consciously doing. It's what real faith does. You remember what, what Paul told the Corinthians over 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. He says, hey man, we don't look at the things which are seen anymore. That's not what we... That's that's not what we're looking at. He goes on to say, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, they are eternal. Set your mind on the things above and seek them. Expend energy to seek them. Friends, this is Christianity. This is Christianity. This is the call of God. Our Jesus view and our heaven view dominates our world view. Jesus Christ is our true north. Amen? He is our true north and we live uh, with our direction and bearing and orientation pointed at Jesus. He is our true north. We live from God's perspective. What does it look like? What does it look like to live from God's perspective? Hebrews 11. Some of you say, Jim, you talk about Hebrews 11 all the time. I know. I can't help it. That's what real faith looks like. You know, there's a lot of religious guys and robes and stuff and people, preachers, you know. There's a lot of guys that will try to redefine biblical faith for you. But God's defined it uh, so a six-year-old can understand it. Hebrews 11, he says, here's what it looks like. It looks like real men and real women with real faith in a real God making a real difference in the real world. That's real faith. That's Hebrews 11. It's, it's, a, it's a radical response to, to, to radical grace. They understood how much God loved them and they could not not live it huge. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. 
It's a commentary on Colossians 3, 1 and 2 to keep seeking the things above. The men and women of Hebrews 11, they set their minds on the things above. You remember Hebrews 11:10? They were looking for the city of God. Let me ask you, how many of you have been thinking about heaven since I preached about it in January? Is this something that's in your mental and spiritual inventory? Are you setting your heart and your mind on heaven? Are you just simply worried about what you have to do today? Beloved, God means for us to be looking at heaven. God means for us to be pointing at heaven. God means for us to, as we've been saying, point at the Bema seat. Hebrews 11, uh, 13. Remember these men and women, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Beloved, are you living like you're a stranger and an exile? Hebrews eleven sixteen, These men and women, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. They lived from God's perspective. Even if it didn't look safe, they went with God. I can't tell you how many Christians I talked to down through the years. I've been doing this for a long time. Men and women will get up to that place, of, that hard place of obedience and they'll start wringing their hands and they'll shrink back and they won't go with, with, with God. They won't do the thing that they know that He's calling them to do. Beloved, <laughs> that's a lack of faith. God says you must not only believe that I am, but what? You must believe that I'll reward you. You, that, that you must believe that I reward those who seek me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. I, I, I fear that many of, of God's people or many of the people who call themselves God's people, they don't really believe that God's good for His promise. And so they shrink back or they play it safe or they try to stand in the middle. Beloved, life and joy is with Jesus. It doesn't matter how hard it looks or how unsafe it may look. It doesn't matter. Remember the analogy that we used in that Heaven series about, about uh, pointing at the Bema seat. Remember we talked about that Olympic marathon runner and he ascended that gold medal platform. And it was no accident he ascended that gold medal platform. That's what he'd been pointing at all his life. And I think the metaphor is perfect. That's what we're supposed to be pointing at. We're supposed to be pointing at the Bema seat just like that. It's to be our preeminent focus. That, that Olympian, we'd have to use words like this uh, to describe him. And, and when I, as I read this list, I want you to, to, to hear these words and I want, to see, I want you to ask yourself, are these the, the words that would apply to my Christianity? Listen to, listen to these words. This man, this man or woman would be focused. He would be disciplined. He would be tireless. He would be driven. He would be motivated. He would be hardworking. He would be determined. He would be single-minded. He would be obsessed. He would be resolute. He would be unwavering. And I could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. Is this how you're living your faith, Christian friend? I told him this morning, you're a vapor upon the earth. You have moments left. Are you going to live it big or are you going to live it small? I think God is calling us to live it big. He says, set your heart and your mind on the things above. Live like you're a son or a daughter of the king. Live like it. Live like it. What a beautiful, beautiful exhortation for us. I love it. I love it. Hebrews 11. God shows us what real faith looks like. And then you've got to love Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. God says, that's how I want you to live. If you go, look, go look at it for yourself. Hebrews 
12, 1 and 2 at your leisure. Go look at it. God says, hey, that's how I want you to live. That's how I want you to live. God says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see why Hebrews 11 and the first part of Hebrews 12 is a commentary on Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And two. Again, I'm going to share with you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It's vivid. Listen to this. He says, strip down and start running and never quit. I love that. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Christ who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. Did you hear that? That ill... Uh, exhilarating finish in and with God. I love that. I love that paraphrase. Christ never lost sight of the fact that He was going to finish with God. Beloved, this is supposed to be in your thinking. Paul says, set your heart and your mind on the things above. Never forget that you will finish. It will be an exhilarating finish with the living God. Is he, and I love this Greek word translated race in Hebrews 12.1. It gives us some insight into what God is communicating to us here. The Greek word is agon. It's the, it's the word we get the, the English word agony from. He's not calling us to a stroll. He's not, he's not calling us to a jog. He's calling us to an all-out sprint of faith. That's what God is calling us to. I think the analogy is perfect. He's not calling us to a coasting kind of life. He's calling us to a passionate, persevering kind of life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit says, keep seeking the things above, He means it. He means it. This is not just pretty theology. He means for you to do that. He means for you to live that. Beloved, this is the message from the Word of God to us tonight. So let me ask you, have you stripped down and have you started to run, as Eugene Peterson says? And are you keeping your mind on that exhilarating finish in and with God? I want to assert to you that that is the only reasonable response to the, the gospel of radical grace. That your response would be radical. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and go with the Savior. Go with the Savior. You've got to love the Gospel. I love, I love what Philippians 3.20 says. It says, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. You ever notice? It's in heaven. That's not future tense. That's what? Present tense. Live like you're a citizen of heaven. That's what He's calling us to do. Live like it. Beloved, are you living like you're a citizen of heaven? Or have you just kind of eased into kind of a mediocrity and an apathy and a lethargy. Beloved, Christ has never called anyone into that. He's called us again to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Him. I love what one theologian says. He says, our heavenly citizenship should be on display in our earthly lives. I love that. I think that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. The transition that Paul makes here between Colossians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 3, it's the same transition that Paul made between Romans chapter uh, 11 and Romans chapter 12. You may remember 
Paul pens 11 chapters of the most breathtaking theology in all the Bible. And then he just breaks out in doxology. He just breaks out into worship. It's like he can't, he can't help himself. But then he makes application. You may remember. You may remember. And I just want to say this to you because I noticed this. I thought it was, I guess, a, yeah, it was interesting to me that, that uh, the Holy Spirit says the same thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2 as he says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2 and the same thing he says in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. I thought that was interesting. You know, that's a preacher thing. Probably not interesting to you, but it was interesting to me. He says the same thing every time. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to do it. Listen to what he says, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, after this 11 chapters of this awesome, radical grace, radical love, radical salvation of God. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love what the King James, how the King James uh, translates this. It says, this is your reasonable service. And the International Standard Version says this is the reasonable way you should, you should worship. It's the reasonable response to radical grace. To give ourselves away to this awesome God who's given Himself away to us. One more, one more message paraphrase. Romans 12.1. I love how Eugene Peterson says this. Listen to this. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and give it to God. Amen? That's what He's calling us to do. Give it to God. Look at verse 3 and 4. We'll finish up. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, out, uh, is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Paul says we have been crucified with Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. We, he says, I've been crucified to the world. Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been cru crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. We talked about that last week. And you see right here that we, that we have died in Christ. And our life is hidden with Him. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. Uh, he, says that, he says that the Christian is spoiled for this world. He no longer is in love with this world. He's in love with Christ. And he set his mind uh, on the things of Jesus. He set his heart on the heavenlies. And he's, man, he's an alien and he's, he's, a, he's a pilgrim and he's on his way home. He's on his way to the celestial city. This is the call, the call of God. The world no longer holds any strong allure for us. It no longer holds our affections. Our affections belong to the Son of God. Look, look at verse 4. It says, look, look, look how the Holy Spirit says it. He says, our life is hidden in Christ. Verse 5, he says, our life is Christ. And I, I was doing some reading this week and I saw John MacArthur. I love the way he talked about this. He says, my life is all tangled up with God. I love that. Beloved, if you're a Christian tonight, your life is all tangled up with God. <laughs> That's exciting to me. We are partakers of the divine nature. Amen. Just go read John 17. I know I mentioned that verse, that chapter a lot to you as well. Somehow, mysteriously, we're caught up in the Godhead. It's unbelievable. Uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the mystery of being in Christ. Beloved, we're tangled up with God. How can we live our Christianity small? We're tangled up with God. How could we live it small? How could we do that? 
You know, Christianity can't be some little religious corner in your life. Beloved, if that's what it is to you, I, I, would, I would lovingly say to you that you have not met Him yet. You have not met Him yet. If, Christ, if your Christianity is some little corner of your life, we've been called to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Him. And the text says Christ is what? Christ is our life is what the text says. What does it mean that we are hidden in Christ? I think two things. First, we are uh, eternally secure. No one or no thing can separate us from uh, our omnipotent salvation in Christ. He is our refuge. He is our strong tower. He is our vast granite fortress, as we have said many, many times. The second thing I think it, it means is that our, our God-begotten nature is largely veiled to, to those around us. People know we're weird, right? They know you're weird. Everyone knows you're weird, right? You don't belong here. You're a pilgrim. You're on your way home. Everybody knows you're weird. They just don't know how weird you are. They can't see that you're a son or a daughter of God. They can't see that you're, you're a son or daughter of light. They can't really see it. It's veiled right now. I think this could be one meaning that uh, Paul has for us here. Brothers and sisters, we are born of God aliens. We are born of God aliens. Amen. Verse 4, notice what the Holy Spirit says. One day our identities will be fully revealed. When Jesus returns, we shall be revealed in glory. I'm sorry that Christine is not here tonight. I had a good visit with her Friday night. She asked me, and I'm closing now. She asked me um, a great question Friday night. She said, Jim, why don't you give formal invitations uh, to come to Christ after you preach? I know that this is something that is done in many, many places. And it's a good question. It's a fair question. And uh, I have a couple of reasons. One is I believe that the preached Word is God's invitation. I believe that preaching the Word of God is His uh, explicit invitation to all who hear to respond. That's what I believe to be true. The call to come to Christ, it flows out of every text I preach. Every single one. And what the, you know, it, it's what the Holy Spirit does. I can't do it. It's what He does. I don't try to usurp the Spirit of God. It's what He does. The second thing for me personally is I've seen the invitation system abused for most of my life. And I've watched, I've watched men seek to usurp the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in conversion by emotionally and psychologically manipulating people. And I'll have no part of that. You know, here's the deal. The Holy Spirit doesn't need my help. You know, as one theologian said, the Holy Spirit will always get His man. He doesn't need me to help Him. And so I just try to stay out of the way. <laughs> I just try to stay out of the way. Let the Holy Spirit do what only He can do. You know, it, you, you might get, you know I might be able to manipulate you into becoming a church member. You know, signing a little card and, and I don't know, doing some stuff. I, I could probably manipulate you into that. But you know what? No man can manipulate a man into Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. I don't, you can't be manipulated into that. You've got to see Christ. Or you're never going to come with that kind of invitation. You're never going to come. I don't care how good the guy is at emotionally and psychologically manipulating people. You can't manipulate someone into such a radical call that Jesus gives to His people. Only a man whose heart has been opened by the Holy Spirit will respond to that call. So, 
in honor of Christina tonight. It was a good question. We had a good talk. I'm going to close with an invitation tonight. Okay? I'm going to close with an invitation tonight. Not a fleshly one that seeks to manipulate you with with emotion or uh, psychology, but I think I'll just close with a biblical invitation. It's an invitation that, that God Himself used. And yeah, you guessed it. It's a radical response to the radical love and radical grace of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Beloved, here's your invitation. Unbeliever, here's your invitation. These are the words of God. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will be saved. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this great exhortation. Thank you, Lord, that you have reminded us that our hearts and our minds are to be set into the heavenlies. We're we're to be focused on Jesus. We're to be pointing at the Bema seat. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. There may be some in here who need to repent, Father, of being distracted by the things of the world, not truly being focused on, on Christ. Lord, I pray that You would grant us the faith to live this this faith huge. Father, I pray that we'd be convicted of our our lethargy or our apathy. Father, we give ourselves away that we'd be a people known. The International Church of Milan, it's, it's a people who give themselves away to God. It's a people who magnify Christ in their life. By their deeds. They do the Word. They don't just talk about it. They don't just hear it. They do it. It is our evangelism. We live this beautiful gospel. And Father, we just have to thank You. As we prepare to leave, we have to thank You one more time. One more time for this radical grace, this radical love. Father, for every one of us in here who who are a Christian, if it weren't for You, we wouldn't be. We understand it's Your work from beginning to end and we rejoice and give thanks that You're a God who loves and forgives, a God of great compassion, a God of infinite grace. And that's what each one of us needed and You gave it. Father, we thank You for this radical Gospel. Oh Lord, I pray. I pray we wouldn't live it small. I pray we wouldn't think about it small. Lord, I pray that we would give ourselves away and we would answer the call. We would answer the invitation of Christ. We would deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and just go with Him. No more religion. No more man-made religion. We're just going to go with Jesus. Help us, I pray. Awesome God, in Jesus' name. Amen.